The Guardian. Guardian Podcasts are partnered with audible.co.uk. For a free download, be sure to check out guardian.co.uk slash audible, where Guardian listeners can choose any audiobook for free. See the page for more details. On this week's Media Talk, when they said it would be the Twitter Olympics, this isn't entirely what they meant. We look at the fallout from the teenager who was arrested after sending abusive tweets to Tom Daly and the journalist who had his Twitter account suspended after daring to use it to criticise NBC. Also this week, we look at the media's coverage of the games to date. What do you mean you've been watching Sky Living? And run an action replay of the latest radio listening figures from Rajar. Who's up? Who's down? And who should shut up and play a bleeding jingle? Oh. Media Talk from Guardian.co.uk Joining me this week are Steve Ackerman, Managing Director of content company Something Else, and making a welcome return to the pod is Mr Steve Busfield, former Media Guardian editor and now the Guardian's US sports editor. Also joining me is Josh Halliday, Media Guardian reporter. Welcome all. We start this week with the curious case of the journalist whose Twitter account was suspended after he criticised NBC's coverage of the London Olympics. Aside from meaning Guy Adams, the independence man in LA, was unable to tweet to his 20-odd thousand followers for a short while, it also raised big questions about Twitter's judgement. Adams didn't hold back in his criticism, calling NBC utter, utter bastards for not showing the ceremony live, and also said they were to live broadcasting what Mitt Romney is to international diplomacy. He also posted the corporate email address of an NBC executive. Um, Steve, that's Steve Ackerman. What did you make of this whole episode? Well, the thing I found quite extraordinary was my understanding of Twitter and its rules is that you're not allowed to, in the case of this email address, they claimed he was in breach because he he made public something that's private information. And yet that corporate email address is very publicly available. You don't have to be an internet expert to be able to fish that out. So under the rules that Twitter themselves set, there's nothing he'd actually done wrong apart from offend a very rich and powerful broadcaster who particularly around Olympics content is really the main player in town. So you can understand the furore really. Um, he, he, he was voicing on Twitter comments that many people were saying all over the world and certainly many people in America were saying in terms of why they couldn't see this opening ceremony. And Josh, it was interesting how the uh, the complaint came about because it wasn't NBC that spotted it in the first place. No, that's right. This was a surprising development and it potentially really damaging to Twitter because it emerged 48 hours after Guy Adams had his account suspended. There was actually Twitter who instigated the complaint um, by tipping off NBC that Guy Adams had posted the corporate email address of, of this managing executive. Um, this is entirely against Twitter's policy. It's kind of um, merging church and state in a way that they try and avoid you know, wholeheartedly all the time. But this turns out to be, according to Twitter, a rogue employee who was involved in Twitter's partnership with NBC and suggested that NBC, in hypersensitive mode, might want to take a look at this guy's Twitter account. It's a familiar-sounding one, rogue employee defence. Um, but what's, the, what's their um, policy in, in regards to moderating tweets? Is, is there no, well, obviously no pre-moderation because they don't get to see them, but uh, what, what's their official line on that? Twitter's official line is that it's entirely hands-off in regards to 400 million tweets posted every day. It doesn't look at any tweets, it doesn't actively monitor tweets it says anyway, because if it did it would be open to all sorts of legal issues, it would um, have the police on its back all the time, it's just easier and more American for the company to say these are the property of the people that posted them, nothing to do with us, Gov. 
and Steve, Steve Busfield. Uh, I won't do that in the entire podcast. Uh, I should just look at who I'm speaking to and the listener can work out for themselves. But uh, and, and the plot thickened a bit because uh, NBC and Twitter have got a uh, sort of formal relationship. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, I think in order to understand this uh, incident, you sort of need to know all of the background about, about NBC and how they come in for an enormous amount of criticism uh, from the very beginning of the Olympics. Uh, the background was that they'd sort of revealed... They'd said everything will be available on our live stream, on our on our website. And then people discovered that actually you had to be a cable subscriber in order to get the live stream from the NBC website. So you had to, you know, so that immediately counted a lot of people out. And then on the opening day for the opening ceremony, they didn't actually even stream that live. So... Twitter was full of people who were absolutely furious with the way that NBC was was uh, broadcasting the Olympics. And Guy Adams's tweets just sort of caught the mood. And then when Twitter and NBC behaved, you know, heavy-handedly, it sort of just played into everybody's hands and the criticism. I mean, Twitter's a, a, a relatively new company, and they're clearly feeling their way in how to deal with these things. And you hope that they'd be smart enough to know, actually, this is clearly not the way to deal with this one. The interesting thing is, though, how, how many times have we seen a big corporate giant be overly heavy-handed in terms of comments in the online space and the resultant damaging PR they get out of that? And it's just extraordinary, the overreaction from NBC to this, because, you know, as you said, Josh, fr- frankly, most people would, wouldn't have been aware of these tweets unless this story had happened. And now everybody's aware of it. And NBC comes off very, very badly from this. And as uh, Steve touched on there, um, you know, NBC's uh, coverage, not just of the opening ceremony, but the Olympics to date has come in, Steve, for an awful lot of stick. Well, uh, you know, certainly I think when you hear about how they handled the opening ceremony and edited it, uh, I, I find that quite extraordinary because, um, you know, the, the, the bits they cut out of the ceremony, including the very touching uh, memorial to people who had died, including 7-7 seven, seven, uh, victims. Imagine if the uh, shoe had been on the other foot. And um, the BBC had uh, cut out something um, uh, relating to 9-11. You can imagine the fury in the States that would have been over that. So for NBC to claim, well, well, in the commentary notes we were given, it wasn't ever really made clear that those pictures were going to be there is pretty hard to believe when you're the main broadcaster funding the Olympics. You've got access to every bit of information you possibly need. I'm, I'm not sure that, uh, that NBC even read their, uh, their notes about the opening ceremony because I was in the office on the, on the night of the opening ceremony and uh, I was, we, you know, whilst we were enjoying it enormously, we were trying to work out what other bits of the world were making of it. Uh, and our correspondent in Japan said, well, actually, uh, they really, they, you know, they get David Beckham and they understand the Queen and James Bond. And, you know, and even the bits that, that weren't necessarily going to be tra- easily translatable around the world, they were talking about and explaining very well because they'd clearly done their work. Meanwhile, NBC sort of said, you know, when Tim Berners-Lee came out and they said, you know, we've no idea who this bloke is either, so why don't you Google him? <laughs> <laughs> which, which given Fairly that you're already, actually. <laughs> which given that you're already in trouble with, you know, with an online audience, the, the, they've they've made a lot of enemies online, and sure, that isn't all of NBC's audience. There are millions and millions of people. You know, one of the one of the discussions about the delaying of the of the broadcasting is that you know lots of people don't sit and have access to the internet all day and they're not sitting and watching twitter and they don't know who has won and you know and they might want to get home and you know and watch it as live although they've also been messing up on that enormously as well because when missy franklin won her gold they had a trail about three minutes before saying come and watch missy franklin win gold (laughs) (laughs) it's going 
kind of detracts from the excitement <laughs> yeah. somewhat. And uh, Steve, is this the same broadcast that spent one uh, reputed one billion dollars on the rights? Yeah, I mean, NBC have had the rights for uh, for quite some time, and until now, this has always been the model. They've always, if it's in the wrong time zone, they delay it and they show it as live in the evenings. And that's clearly when their prime time is. That's when they get their most advertising revenue. Um, and you know, and that's that's their biggest audience. But they have completely misjudged the fact that in the last, I mean, the the, four, the last four years have seen an enormous step change in the way that you can get your information now, and that far too many people now are uh, web savvy and get this, uh, and you know, and can watch things online and aren't sitting and waiting. And yeah, so there was a there was a joke the other day about it being you know the last horse and carriage uh, Olympics, but I think that should probably have been a few ago. And Josh, final word on Twitter. People are talking about a a breakdown in trust between uh, users and Twitter as a a result of the the Guy Adams um, incident, we could call it. Um, uh, Do do you think this has any long-term implications for for the social media company? Do you think, will they they be forced to come out with a a new policy in future? Or what do you predict? I think that Twitter has the right policy in terms of trust and safety. The fact is that they came out too late, far, far too late, to explain actually what their policy was, exactly where the breakdown had been. And they let these conspiracy theories develop, which turned out not to be conspiracy theories. Actually, it turned out to be the worst-case scenario for Twitter. The fact is Twitter doesn't have a very good communications policy, either with the press or with the public or with people whose accounts it seems to have banned very quick triggered. Guy Adams was reportedly asking Twitter for more information about why his account had been banned and how he would get it back for the best part of 48 hours, and it was radio silence from Twitter, so that's really something it needs to work on. Well, Olympics-related Twitter stories are like London buses. Um, insert uh, your own gag here, because uh, we also turn our attention this week to the uh, the strange case of the teenager who took to Twitter to abuse diver Tom Daly after he failed to land Team GB a medal. Riley69 is an absolute charmer, if you haven't already looked at his Twitter feed, said Daly had let his late father down with his performance, and much worse besides, which we won't go into here. Riley69 later apologised of sorts, but that didn't stop him being arrested by police on suspicion of malicious communications. Now, Josh, no one really deserves to be abused on Twitter or in any other public forum, whether they're a celebrity or not, but were you surprised that this chap actually got arrested? I was slightly surprised that this chap had got arrested, not least because it was less than half a day after he'd posted the allegedly malicious tweet. That's an awful quick turnaround for something like that. The debate is whether it was uh, a malicious communication or whether you know he just deserved a bit of a slap on the wrist because he's been an idiot. I mean, we've all got different opinions on that. It did spark a big public debate on online comment and where the line can be drawn. But the thing about this Olympics is that it's exposed a real dark underbelly to Twitter and seems to have brought out the, un- the, the angry mob, not just Tom Daly, not just athletes that have been abused, but presenters, other celebrities, and it's something that really Twitter does need to get on top of as well. Steve, Steve Ackman, there's a thin line, isn't there, between freedom of speech on the one hand and, and the rights of the, of the individual from, from a, this sort of abuse? Well, I think in in this case, I mean, when you see all the tweets that were sent, I mean, the worst ones were absolutely vile and and, and malicious. They were really, really unpleasant. And, um, you know, if you put that context in the sense of if that was said face to face, that would be a very frightening encounter. If someone was coming up to you and using that sort of language to you and making those sorts of threats to you, that would be a very frightening moment. And you probably would call the police. I mean, you, you would be genuinely frightened. So the distance of online, in one way, you could argue, shouldn't necessarily dissipate that 
effect and you know in that sense I think it was it was quite right you know there's a big difference between being able to make comment about something and that you know that obviously can include negative comment why not but this sort of thing which is sort of threats and really unpleasant malicious comment is something that I think Twitter has to has to look at as as of course do the other social medias as well because Steve I mean this 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 incident showed that uh, you know, the fact that police got involved. Everyone's a broadcaster now. In the old days, it was just um, TV stations, journalists, newspapers that could, um, you know, you were liable for this sort of intervention by the police. But now everyone can have their say in a public forum about and, and say anything they want, and there are consequences to that. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, Steve's talking about about how the the media organisations and the and the social media organisations need to work out on this. Actually, it's, isn't it more about how human be- beings behave? That in the old days, this bloke would, you know, probably have shouted a few of these things at his telly, and whoever was in his in his house would have told him to shut up or you know or just ignored him and now he can you know he can shout it at the telly but he can also be heard by lots of other people elsewhere and you know and even if you've only got 42 followers or whatever the fact is if you say something nasty enough somebody will notice it they will tell other people and before you know it it's got it's got into this huge situation now that i work in uh, in america it's one of those weird things that that the americans are completely confounded by the fact that people get arrested for things that they say on twitter that you know that actually in america this is you know it's just freedom of speech and you can say these abusive things and now we're living in a world where you know an american could say that to a british person and and what would would be done about it afterwards I guess the fact is, Josh, that uh, a lot of us wouldn't have known about this had Tom Daly not chosen to, to retweet it and you know demonstrate to people the sort of idiots that, that, that send him messages. John Campfner was in The Guardian. He was saying that this was, uh, he said Twitter was more pub talk than publication and that uh, people were getting carried away and we should just, uh, perhaps we should just sort of, you know, brush it off and ignore this sort of thing. Do you think he had a point? It's pub talk. He has a point. It's pub talk, but it's also pub talk that's been directed at a lot of people um, increasingly more often. Um, Twitter used to be this place. It was it was seen as a sort of friendly haven on the internet where everyone got along and it was all very civil. And as it's grown, um, as these things tend to do, it suddenly becomes slightly more nasty with, and, and introduced the more nasty elements of society. I mean, and this is offline society being brought online. There's not really that much you can do about it apart from educating people about what norms are online. They are the same as in the offline world and, you know, 10 years down the line, hopefully we won't be having this conversation again. Yeah, I mean, Steve, Steve Ackman, surely there's a, there's a limited role that the police can play in this sort of thing. Uh, as, as Josh pointed out online, Twitter's got 140 million active users sending 400 million tweets a day. Uh, you know, they've probably got enough to be getting along with. Yeah, there's, um, you know, clearly we don't want to be in a scenario where the police are getting called in every time there's, there's a, you know, a sort of malicious or unpleasant tweet. But I, you know, you know, I don't quite agree with, uh, with other Steve uh, in terms of leaving users to sort of legislate for themselves because, you know, the equivalent is if, if you get an abusive call on a radio or TV show, you cut them off. And certainly for, for, you know, there are many online examples where people are asked to sign up to various terms and conditions before they can, they can use the tool. And, you know, clearly there need to be some, some ground rules set. it's not it's not unfair to ask that of the user in a way that doesn't limit free speech but does ensure that that's you know conducted in a in a civil way maybe twitter suspended the wrong account steve But it does feel like just Twitter sort of lost its innocence a bit. I don't, I don't want to come across all Richard Littlejohn, but, you know, you wonder if, if uh, Riley's 69, welcome on next week, uh, is he sort of representative of a dark little corner of social media which is sort of spewing out four-letter words constantly, inviting people over to smack him in the face? <laughs> there are some, you know, there are some people who spend their time on the internet just to get their anger out. Kids you, today. You do, you do think, I mean, I, 
I'm not even sure that they all are all kids. I mean, you know, there, there are just some angry people who find on the internet the opportunity to say things that they would never say to somebody's face. You know, mm. the other Steve mentioned, you know, that that would if you said those things to somebody's face, they would clearly be out of order. Because they're hidden behind the internet, they they get away with it, and it's and it's a thing that you spend a lot of time. Uh, I mean, you know, as as the sports blogs editor at the Guardian, you spend a lot of time thinking about how people talk to each other on our on blogs, and the same for for Twitter. And one of the things that does work on blogs is that is that there is sort of a, a degree of regulation that if somebody comes on and starts being abusive quite often, if it's one of those blogs that's got a, a regular community or, and audience, other people will come on and say, you know, really stop talking, you are talking nonsense. And you hope that they can be talked around rather than, you know, rather than having to suspend their account or delete their comments. And, you know, you hope that the civilising influences will work better than the, than the mad angry people. Well, that's enough Twitter for now. Let's talk about a certain 16-day sporting event which began last week with a live three-hour preview of Peter Jackson's The Hobbit. That's right, it's the Olympics. When the BBC said it would never miss a moment, Steve, that's other Steve, <laughs> it appears they weren't kidding. You've been all over this for The Guardian, of course, as uh, in your role as head of sports blogs. But, uh, you know, 24 digital channels, 2,500 hours of live action. We're about a third of the way in. What do you make of it so far? Well, I love the fact that you can, you know, that there are different channels for every sport. And uh, so, you know, so I was live blogging uh, a couple of days ago and all of a sudden somebody somebody said, there's something going on down at the fencing. And, you know, you just flicked across to the fencing channel and that where you could see the pictures of what was going on, there was a very good commentary where, you know, they clearly knew what they were talking about. You wouldn't have been able to do that in the past. You would have waited. You'd have had to wait for somebody else to spot it and, and go to it. I mean, some of, the, some of those individual channels don't always work perfectly. You know, I sort of was wanting to watch the table tennis the other day and I flicked across to that channel and I realised that there was just a camera in the corner of the room and four table tennis tables and I couldn't tell what the hell was going on but you know but but did you keep watching (laughs) no I went back to the fencing or whatever it was Uh, and actually I I tweeted out last night uh, and asked people what uh, what they'd been thinking of the uh, of the BBC's Olympic coverage and I think on the whole people were were very positive Uh, I'll just read a few of them out Uh, (laughs) (laughs) thankfully not thankfully not Uh, Silver Fox said you can feel the passion and excitement coming through Kian Fay said it was phenomenal. Ian Lawn said, uh, I like the red button choices. You can watch your favourite sport, and Claire Balding is great presenting. And I think Claire Balding has been doing a great job, although there was a moment when I thought she looked as if she was desperate to be out with the horses rather than with the swimmers, uh, but she has been doing a good job. And then, you know, and then there are a few people who are sort of the geeky disco said it was dumbed down, superficial, and puerile. Uh, we do not need all the chat to the crowd stuff by the CBBC presenters. And then Rennie said, it's like a plain grey suit, very grey with no spark but it does the job Uh, which I thought was a little bit harsh I think you know I think the BBC One feed does a very good job like NBC of you know of of telling the evening viewers what it is that they you know they've they want to catch up from the day and uh and you know and about the British athletes because that's who you know most people in Britain are interested in but the introduction of all the other channels means that you have so much choice and so many opportunities to decide what it is that you're going to watch that you really do get the feeling of being there. Yeah, I'll second what you say about Claire Balding. I thought she's been fantastic. Almost feel like, feels like she's the main anchor, but perhaps that's because it's been so much swimming so far. Steve, Steve Ackerman, uh, it's a sign of the BBC's success that even the Daily Mail likes it, apparently. So it's doing something right. Surely not. Yeah. I can't believe that. I mean, I mean, I mean the, the anchor point's an interesting one because actually, I mean, I, I do think Claire Balding has been terrific. But I, but I slightly question Gary Lineker as the, as the sort of hold, in that holding mm. 
position. He's, you know, there's been a number of times. I mean, it's not that he's done a bad job, but there's been a number of times where, where either his very cheesy humour has has just sort of floated in the air like a like a bad smell, and you can see that whoever's on the couch sort of looking at, at him slightly mystified. Particularly uh, Ian Thorpe, the Australian swimmer, who clearly there's there's a, there's something missing in translation in terms of what Lineker's uh, saying. But at other times, you know, it's quite nice. It can be quite nice the way he plays the I know nothing about any other sport card. But at other times, I think you kind of want a little bit more from your presenter than that. And certainly when he was chatting to Bradley Wiggins yesterday, it felt a little bit too naive from, from Lineker. And I don't think you would have got that from someone like Claire Balding, who is used to hopping between, between different sports. Yes, I think at one point was Lineker was reading out tweets, was he, too? Or maybe I was watching it on BBC Three, but... Um... Bradley Wiggins looks just slightly dumbfounded by the whole thing. I have to say as well, though, one other thing I'll say about the BBC coverage is, and I think it's something the Guardian's picked up on, is that I do think radio's been a real winner out of this as well. And in many ways, I think Radio 5 has been far better than uh, BBC One at providing some of the colour and some of the atmosphere around the park and the excitement. I mean, certainly if, you, if, you, if you're in London at this time or, or, or you're coming down to London, you get a sense of the vibrancy and excitement that is around the city. There is a real buzz going on. And I think Radio 5's been very good at capturing that, maybe because they've got far more hours where they can do a bit of talking than necessarily some of the TV pictures have managed to do. Yeah, Josh, I know you're a devotee of uh, Five Live Olympic Breakfast. No, we were saying in the office, weren't we, earlier this week, how how brilliant a job they've done, Nicky Campbell and Rachel Burden, really early in the morning, actually. When no sport's going on, they still a fantastic atmosphere. When half of London's still asleep, I mean, half past six in the morning, they're already down at Olympic Park. Nicky Campbell is hollering at people as they walk past the studio saying, say hello to their nation. I, ha- I have to say, though, a little bit too much. It feels a little bit like the Radio 1 Road short time, because almost every interview he starts shouting out, say hello to, look what I've got with me, and, you know, calm down, Nicky, calm down. It was- when you go down to the Olympic Park, it's a bit like a festival. You know, they're, they're sort of the huge crowds milling around and going to the you know the different arenas. There that is really a real across. festival feel to it. Really comes across. I mean, he's he's asking people every two minutes, "Have you got the Olympic tingle?" And you know, half past six. Actually, Nicky, you have given me the Olympic tingle a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> you can take that bit out if you want. <laughs> Well, uh, Olympic tingles aside, we should also mention the, uh, the the ratings figures, Steve. A peak of peak of nearly twenty seven million, and uh, almost as interesting, perhaps even more so, that twenty million people were still watching at midnight, which is uh, phenomenal. Well, because you know, because it went on for it. I mean, I, I, I'm quite interested in why they started it at nine o'clock. Actually, I mean, especially given that you know, given that was America, the the huge audience wasn't you know wasn't watching it live anyway. So you know, so so given that it was going to be an enormously long short show, why did they start it so late? Well, I'm told by producer Matt that uh, one of the reasons was that uh, Danny Boyle wanted uh, darkness so that everything uh, lit up properly. Which I guess makes which I guess makes sense, but you know, but it does mean that the main show was still on. You know, the the one of the very few moments that I think the BBC has misstepped was during the uh, the teams coming out and their pre-prepared notes for for some of the teams. So you know, say so here comes the Liberian team, a country of senseless killing and uh, and and slaughter. Uh, they have six athletes this year. As, as, as Neil Midgley uh, said on <laughs> said on Twitter, it was like the lottery. So <laughs> here comes <laughs> here comes the UAE four four times a bonus ball. Uh, well, final word um, uh, on the Olympics. I think the BBC uh, occasionally now you get they get accused, and certainly the media in general get accused of being sort of too pro GB. But I think. Um, in terms of broadcasting, Steve, they've, they've just about got it in the, in, the, in the right order, I think. I did enjoy part of the, the rowing where he said, uh, we're into the final stages now and that we weren't even halfway through the race. But uh... 
I think if there's one Olympics where you would expect the broadcaster to, um, you know, to be even more pro pro Team GB than usual, it's the home Olympics. You know, I think you've got to expect that because because actually my my sense is, you know, I remember many years ago being in America for an Olympics and getting very irritated that NBC only showed you anything that was going on to do with America. You didn't see anything else. You had no sense of any other sports and 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 you'd even watch races where if the American was coming second, you'd have no idea who was out front because the camera would be <laughs> would be stuck on the person coming second. And at times BBC coverage has been like that. However, I do think that really matches the national mood. And you can see now that the goals are starting to come in we're starting to get a bit of lift off now you know in terms of it's it, it, it's it's getting even higher I'm, you know you see so many people around town with their faces painted or their or their tops on obviously going off to different venues so I, th- I think the BBC's pitched it absolutely right and you know I think as we get into the athletics it's that sense of euphoria is going to get even higher probably well more ratings figures of course at mediaguardian.co.uk Well, it's that time of the year again, the quarterly radio listening figures. But who's up, who's down, and who, well, you know, stay broadly the same? There's only one way to find out. At number five, going down, is Radio 1 DJ Chris Moyles, who lost half a million listeners and sank to his lowest audience since 2006. Good for him, that is moving on in September, not off. And number four, and also going down, is Talk Radio. Both Radio 5 Live and Talk Sport lost listeners in the second quarter of the year. And number three, and going up, it's a joint entry for Absolute Radio and Planet Rock, which piled on the listeners in the second three months of the year. Greetings, rock pickers. A new entry at number two is uh, Digital Radio, which now accounts for 31.5% of all radio listening, with 20.1% of it on DAB. Switch off, switch over more like. And staying at number one is Chris Evans, still the nation's most popular breakfast host, with nearly 9 million listeners a week on the country's biggest station, Radio 2. All right, stay bright. Uh, Round of applause. A round of applause to yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so, I think so. That's the Sony entry right there. <laughs> Got to say, Josh Halliday was so appalled by that, and the Alan Freeman reference was entirely lost on the 20-something that he's left the studio. But uh, Steve Ackerman, as a professional radio man, have I got a future in the pop charts? Uh, I would leave the pop charts alone, but some of the headlines you've picked out have clearly been some of the stories that are, that are sort of emerging. I think there's a few other, one or two other sort of interesting things. Listening uh, year on year, you know, complete listening is down a little bit. Now, that could just be the vagaries of rage. They're saying it's 89% of the country now listens, and I think it was about 92, 93%. But I think there's, uh, there's, there's a couple of really interesting things. First of all, listening via a mobile is up by 24%. Now, we're talking about still pretty small numbers, but the fact that that's jumping fairly quickly... Uh, I think tells you a lot. Same for online listening, up by 37% year on year. So that's 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 a really big jump. And, you know, just to pick up on uh, the point you made about digital share of listening, you said it was digital radio. The point about that number, that, that 31.5%, is actually it's digital listening. So that includes DTV, internet, mobile. What it doesn't necessarily do is give a ring endorsement for DAB, which has increased but it's still, uh, it's still not necessarily going at the pace it's, it's going to need to go before we can talk about um, analogue switch-off. Yeah, we're not going to get a switch-off in, in 2015, but, uh, but it, was, it's, it wasn't a, an unimpressive year-on-year increase, as you say, in digital listening overall. It's definitely moving in the right direction, but you know, clearly a long way to go before you can start to have that com- conversation with the uh, great British public, as I keep hearing during this Olympic season. 
Steve Chris Moyles, where he's leaving in September after eight and a half years. Don't know if you listen to him online in in New York. Very possibly not. But um, uh, it it sounds like Ben Cooper made the right call. Better 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 to to, to announce your Radio One presenter is is uh, your breakfast presenter is leaving before he suffers a dip in listeners rather than after. And he's been rumoured to be leaving for at Since least a year, if not two, and if not, you know, six, yeah. I mean, there, there comes a point where, you know, where Radio 1 is supposed to be hitting a, a youthful audience and you're not that youthful anymore. I mean, you know, so, so you know, Chris Evans was uh, used to do that gig and now he's doing Radio 2 very su- successfully. I was kidding about 1996, of course, when uh, Chris Evans was on the Radio 1. Um, but, Steve, uh, it, it, it'll be interesting uh, in the Radio 1 breakfast show with Nick Grimshaw coming in, who I think uh, is a v- very good presenter and clearly one for the future. Um, a bit of a Marmite figure, sort of love-hate guy. But um, I guess it will benefit him if, if more the audience he inherits from more isn't quite so big. It makes it less of a challenge. takes the pressure off a tiny bit. Yeah, exactly that. I don't think Ben Cooper, who's, who's the controller of Radio 1, is going to be losing any, any sleep. And, you know, I would have thought also when there was a show changeover, they would be pretty relaxed if the figures do drop because uh, exactly what Steve's described needs to happen which is that sort of audience realignment of allowing some listeners to to move away from Radio 1 uh, you know the BBC Trust has asked Radio 1 to to be targeting a younger audience so they have to start atri- uh, uh, achieving that okay well that's enough Ray Giles for this quarter see you in three months time and with that we draw proceedings to a close my thanks to Steve Busfield Steve Ackerman and Josh Halliday Your opinions, please, are most welcome on our Facebook wall, our blog, or you can tweet me at johnplunkett149. That's assuming they haven't suspended my account, of course. This week's producer was Mr Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio. Guardian podcasts are partnered with audible.co.uk. For a free download, be sure to check out guardian.co.uk slash audible, where Guardian listeners can choose any audiobook for free. See the page for more details.